Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. For today's show about truly extraordinary twins, we're going to be talking about odds. A lot. The odds of being conjoined twins who survive is 7.5%. You'll meet six-year-old Callie and Carter, who did just that, and their mom, Chelsea. The odds of being conjoined twins surviving separation surgery, that's 60%. You'll meet Aaron and Jade in a little bit. They were separated at a little under four months old. The odds of being twins born on either side of the millennium, like right before the year 2000 came and then right after, Well, there are very few pairs in the world, maybe fewer than 10. So I'll let someone else calculate those odds. Anyway, you're going to meet a pair from Indianapolis and their mom later in the show. But first, we're going to meet a pair of twins who were once frozen in time as embryos for 30 years. The odds there? One, or, well, I guess two, in eight billion. There have never in the history of humankind been such old embryos carried to term. And their names are Lydia and Timothy Ridgway. They were born on October 31st, 2022, and they were frozen back on April 22nd, 1992. In April of 1992, I was 11 years old, and that was also the year that the Cold War formally ended. Uh, Compact discs surpassed cassette tapes and sales, and speed skater Bonnie Blair won the first gold medal for the U.S. in the Olympics. You know, simpler times. Their parents, Rachel and Philip Ridgway, chose those embryos from what was called the Special Consideration Section at the National Embryo Donation Center. They were considered special because their biological father, the donor, died of Lou Gehrig's disease, which can be passed down genetically. When all four of them joined me recently, the twins were just six weeks old. And I asked, of all the embryos to choose, why these? Because when we went to the NEDC the first time, we were told that no one looks at those children. And that really spoke to us as, okay, well, then that's definitely a category we want to look at then. And then as we were going through those categories, we're like, okay, here's a couple of, you know, there's five embryos here that have never been adopted. And as far as we can tell, they've been waiting the longest. So let's go ahead and take these guys. It's just a dynamic and I guess that's at the heart of all the media interviews you've been doing and and this interview as well to a degree like it's this dynamic that no one is used to. You know, when we if we get to conceive children, they are new. They are brand new. <laughs> and you remember life before them and life after them and that's it and it's pretty straightforward. But the idea that these two souls, spirits, beings have in some way, shape, or form existed for so long and just been in waiting. What do you do with that feeling? It's very humbling to us because the fact that God created these two children 30 years ago and then waited those 30 years for us to be their parents. There could have been anyone in the midst of that time that he could have chosen. Instead, he had chosen us. And so there's very much a humility involved with it. 
and just a wonder and thankfulness that the Lord preserved them for that amount of time and that we get to hold them now in our arms and get to be their parents. And we want to, Lord willing, in the future, be able to explain that to Lydia and Timothy and show them how special they truly are. You had mentioned about how they were in this special consideration category of embryos that aren't often even looked at or considered. Um, Their biological father died of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And Rachel, you've said it didn't really matter to us if they're considered perfect or not. And Philip, I've read that you've said, you know, we've always thought let's have as many kids as God wants to give us. We're not done yet if that's God's will. And this is a tough part of the conversation to have that I'm sure you've had in your mind as well. And I'm really curious to hear your reflections on it. But by intentionally bringing into the world two people who may have later in life, Lou Gehrig's disease, which, as you know, is this brutal, painful, cruel disease that affects the person with it, that affects their family. I guess I'm curious to hear how you square being accountable for choosing them to possibly give them that experience of being a human being with Lou Gehrig's disease, a very painful condition. Like, why didn't you choose someone else? And what what do you think if you imagine that if someday these these beautiful babies may suffer in that way? I'd just like to hear your reflections on that. Yeah, so it's important to remember that the ones in the special considerations category are simply ones that are, that are known as a possibility. The other ones, it's unknown, but still just as much of a possibility. And so in, in our minds, there wasn't a question of, well, should we choose some over others because there's a known possibility versus an unknown? The other is that God created humans in, in his own image, and that's why we have value and worth. It's not because of our size or our level of development or environment or degree of dependency. We all have value because we're human beings, regardless of whether we have maladies or disorders. Or you know, I mean, I have a particular genetic condition, but I, I'm grateful for the life that, that God's given to me because it's better than what I deserve. And and. There are many people that have extremely painful, debilitating conditions that would rather have life with them than no life without them. Yes, their their life is, is painful, but it's better than no life at all. I think of Johnny Erickson Tata, who's been paralyzed from basically the shoulders down since she was 18. And the Lord has used her in most powerful, beautiful ways to help others in similar conditions, help people get wheelchairs. She's done all these things. She's done it because of where the Lord has led her. And we have no idea what the Lord will lead for Timothy and Lydia. And I'm excited to see how he wants to use their lives. Rachel, I bet that I bet a lot of people when they imagine these two embryos before you encountered them, before you chose them, they were sort of suspended in time. Like if they are souls and spirits at that point, just these little souls just suspended in time, they're not aging, they're just waiting. Mm-hmm. When you were pregnant with these children, did you feel like I have these older souls in me? And then when they were born, were you like, finally, in a way that you weren't with any of your other children? There's there's some absolutely differences in that um, when we went in for the actual transfer, and Dr. Gordon shows me the picture of them, the Lord really gave me a love for the three of them, even though he only chose two to implant, but it was an overwhelming love for them that I had never experienced before. I mean, you have these three little 
yeah, this picture of these three little embryos and there's not much to look at there, but I was definitely filled with a love for them. And, you know, it's different things as you're going through different holidays, like 4th of July, realizing that this is their first 4th of July in 30 years and different things like that. Like realizing that they had waited so long to be able to experience things that most kids get to experience from the very beginning. They get to experience those in the womb and these kiddos, they had a pause for 30 years. And so yeah, it's a definitely different, a little bit of a different thought process, but at the same time, very much like my other kids are just getting to enjoy the first that they get to experience, seeing their heartbeat for the first time, getting to feel them for the first time. All those things were definitely the same. Well, Rachel and Philip Ridgway, thank you and your family and Lydia and Timothy. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this wild world. Good luck out there. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Kyle. When we get back, meet twins who were born on both sides of the millennium. At the end of the day, it's a neat little story you get to tell, and it's not a story that a lot of people have. Meet twins who were once conjoined. I do kind of think about how slim the odds were that we're here, but I am very thankful. And meet a pair of six-year-old conjoined twins and their mom. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're meeting extremely uncommon twins. Later in the show, you'll meet Callie and Carter, they're conjoined twins who just celebrated their sixth birthday. And you'll meet a pair of twins who are no longer conjoined. But these next twins, they made their debut on each side of the millennium. Let me set the scene. The Milky Way. Planet Earth. It's New Year's Eve 1999. The Waterford crystal ball hovering above Times Square quivers in anticipation. And 710 miles away in Indianapolis, a team of obstetricians, nurses, and Tim Wallman gather round Julie Wallman, who is so very ready to give birth to twins. Moments before midnight on December 31st, 1999, little baby Jacob Wallman made his earthly debut. And then, shortly after the ball dropped on January 1st, 2000, his sister Jordan arrived. Julie, Jacob, and Jordan joined me on Zoom, and we recorded this conversation back in June of 2021. I started out by asking Julie how she felt when she found out she was going to be having twins? Well, the day I found out I was having twins, I actually thought I was losing the baby. 
because I had started spotting and the doctor was like, lay down, relax. We'll have you in this afternoon for an ultrasound. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to relax. Yeah, right. <laughs> my baby. Um, so my sister took me into the hospital and we went back and the ultrasound tech did the um, ultrasound. And she said, okay, there's a baby in a heartbeat. I'm like, oh, thank God. She goes, and there's a baby in a heartbeat. And I'm like, oh my God. I said, you mean it's twins? She's like, yes. And I just started bawling. And she's like, are you okay? And I said, yeah. I said, I'm relieved. I'm shocked. I, she goes, is there anybody here with you? I said, well, my sister's out in the waiting room. So she brought my sister back, who has never had children, so knows nothing about this. And she walks in. I'm bawling. So she's expecting the worst. And she looks at the screen and she's like, should there be two of those? And I said, there should, if you're having twins. <laughs> and then I called my husband, he was at work and I said, are you sitting down? And he said, no, why? I said, well, we're having twins. He goes, you're what? I said, no, we are. I didn't do this on my own. No, you did not. Um, let's skip forward to December 31st, 1999. Tell me how everything unfolded that day. Prior to that day, a couple days, my husband had started taking me for drives over bumpy country roads. On New Year's Eve, he made me go to the wall and parked as far away from the door as he could. So I had to walk as much as I could. He took me a couple days before that to a restaurant we used to have called Don Pablo's because there had been a thing on the news that their salsa put women into labor. So we ended up eating for life for free at Don Pablo's because during all the interviews, we, of course, mentioned that. Um, so then that evening, we were at my mom's playing cards. And I'd had a couple contractions throughout the day, but I hadn't said anything because they weren't big or very close together. And I was sitting next to him and happened to have my hand on his thigh and a huge contraction hit. And instinctively, I just squeezed his leg really hard. He's like, what? I said, nothing, because I still didn't want him to know because I wasn't sure it was time yet. And he's like, you're having contractions. So immediately jumps up, calls the doctor, and we go to the hospital. And once we got there, my contractions stopped. Of course. So they watched me for a little bit, and then they started in again. And they were like off the chart contractions. So the doctor came back, and it was our regular doctor. It was an on-call doctor, which ends up that I was really glad she was the one that was there. She was amazing. And she said, well, we just have a decision to make. She said, do we want a millennium baby or do we want a New Year's baby? And my husband was always the thinky type. And he said, well, can we do it at 1159? Because I had to have a C-section. Um, I have a, had at that point one hip replacement and Jordan was breech. So she didn't want to try turning her with my hip and everything. So she said, we're going to have one of each, aren't we? And Tim said, yep, we are. So they went in and prepped me for the C-section and took Jake about at 11.59. And that from 11.59 to 12.01 was the longest two minutes ever. Everybody just kind of standing around waiting. And then as soon as the clock hit 12.01, she delivered Jordan. 
was there like a sense of humor about all this? Because to me, it's kind of hilarious. Like it's 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 a it's something you decided because you could, you know, thanks to our medical technology. And it's just like a cool thing that you couldn't have possibly really anticipated or had like a family meeting about with your husband. Let's do this. And was it funny to you? It kind of was. And I was kind of out of it because my blood pressure bottomed out during the deliveries. So they had given me some drugs to bring me back. So I was kind of pretty loopy. And right after I delivered Jordan, one of the nurses came in and she said, Julie, there's news media here and they'd like to interview you. And my response, and I was dead serious because, of course, I was very loopy. My response was, well, they wait until the doctor finishes sewing me up. And everybody in the place just died laughing. And I didn't know why they were laughing because I was very serious. So we spent until about 2.30 that morning in with the press talking to them. And then at that point, we got up to my room. And then a couple hours later, a radio station in California somehow got a hold of the hospital. My husband ended up going out and doing a phone interview with them at that point. So the first few days, we didn't get a whole lot of sleep. I know you weren't going to get a whole lot of sleep anyway, but (laughs) thanks, press. Exactly. And now all these years later, you're still doing press. Well, and then the Monday that um, we were going home from the hospital, the hospital set up a press conference in the lobby, and it started at five o'clock in the morning, and we did Good Morning America, the Today Show, and a couple other shows, and then local newscasts as well, and the hospital catered breakfast, and they catered lunch, because, I mean, it was like a five or six hour ordeal that we were going through, so kind of a interesting start but my husband had always hoped no matter when they were born he thought it would be super cool that they didn't share a birthday yeah yeah that's an interesting point because twins so often are just kind of lumped together and seen you know how are you the same how are you different but really how are you the same you know and so that brings me to Jacob and Jordan what (laughs) I know you don't have an alternate life to compare yourselves to but like what has this done for you? Do you like that this is something that comes up throughout your life? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of been fun, like at different like milestone birthdays and stuff, um, like getting back on the news or doing something like this. It's just a fun story to like tell friends and definitely like a unique icebreaker in class. <laughs> yeah, like Jordan said, it's one of those things not a lot of people can say and has happened. Like when I get introduced to new people, whether I'm at work or uh, at football, they're always like, this guy doesn't share a birthday with his twin. And then they go through the whole story. It's one of those things. They're like, do you get tired of hearing that? It's like, no, you just kind of get used to it. It becomes your own thing. Now, the whole separate birthday thing, it's been awesome because since we're so young still right now, every time I hit a milestone age, like 18, 21, 10, as soon as that midnight hits on the 31st, I'm over here. Ha, I'm already 21. You're 20. <laughs> now, it's going to come back and bite me in the butt when we turn 40 and 50. And but we got a ways. <laughs> Is there any way this makes your life more difficult? Insurance. Oh, tell <laughs> me about it, Julie. It, when I first registered them, it was the hardest thing to get everything straight. They had Jordan as a boy. We had to get that straightened out. They kept sending me information stating one of them's date of birth was wrong. And it's like, no. Um, So I ended up just faxing them in copies of birth certificates to show, yes, they're twins, but they have these separate birth dates. And what was that about the taxes? 
Jake, I actually got to claim in 1999, but I lose him a year earlier. So Jordan, I will get to claim one year longer than I do Jake. <laughs> Julie, is there anything you would have done differently? I don't think so. Um, their father died when they were 13 months old. Um, so he has not gotten to share in all this with us. My husband was known by everyone. Um, he was a school picture photographer. He was a ref. Um, he wrote for the newspaper, very popular man, never met anybody he didn't like, was no stranger. And this to him would be just the coolest thing. And I think this is kind of a legacy to him. I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank and you. I'm, I'm glad to know him just briefly through your family and clearly his sense of humor and his support of you and, and love for you is is obvious through your stories. So thank you for sharing that with us. Is there anything that I haven't asked you? Is there anything that like you're annoyed of being asked? Is there anything that I missed that, that you wish you could say? The funniest question I get asked about them is, are they identical? <laughs> and it's like, they're boy, girl. No, they're not. I always find it funny. Like I coach football over here at Mooresville High School. And our head coach every year when he introduces our staff, I'm introduced as a twin who doesn't share a birthday and he goes in the story. Some of the kids are like, well, well, how are you twins? You, you don't have the same birthday. You guys can't be twins. And it's like, you have to sit there and explain it to them. It's like, come on, like, get with the times, <laughs> like, understand it. But you kind of get old you know, going over that over and over again. But at the end of the day, it's just kind of, it's a neat little story you get to tell and it's not a story that a lot of people have. No, sir. Well, Julie, Jacob, and Jordan Wallman, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Next, meet Aaron and Jade Buckles. They were born as conjoined twins on February 26th, 2004. They were connected from navel to mid-chest, sharing a sac around the heart, a diaphragm, and liver. About four months after their first breaths, they underwent separation surgery, which left Aaron paralyzed from the chest down. They're 19 years old now, and I asked them how often they tell people they were once conjoined. You'll hear from Jade first. Most of the time when people ask me, like, about myself, I kind of start with the fun fact that I'm a formerly conjoined twin just because you don't really meet a lot of people who are. And then they always kind of ask the question, like, is your twin okay? Because most of the time both don't make it. And then I get to tell all the fun stories about how different we are. When you look at pictures of yourselves from when you were conjoined, what do you think? What do you feel? I feel like it was probably really uncomfortable. And I can't imagine what it would be like if we were still conjoined. I also don't know who's who in any of those pictures either. So, <laughs> yeah, it almost doesn't really feel like I'm looking at myself. Obviously, we we're so small and like can't remember any of it. So it doesn't really feel like it's me or Jade, just like two people who are stuck together. <laughs> How often, <laughs> I realize I'm asking this, as I notice you're both wearing green. <laughs> How often does that sort of thing happen? 
I feel like that happens all the time. We both have uh, Be Real, like the little app where you take a picture of yourself or whatever. And almost every day we happen to have the same hairstyle. And I don't know how that happens, but it does. Yeah. And I was thinking beforehand how funny it would be if that happened. And uh, it did. So it happens a lot. Erin, the separation surgery left you with a spinal cord injury. So that makes you different from Jade in a lot of ways. What do you make of that when you think about it? I think it does make our dynamic a little bit different from other twins, just because there is that physical separation like of abilities that makes us so different that it sometimes I think there's like a a disconnection with us. It's not like be all end all, but it is different. And I think we've had like struggles with that missing piece. What do you mean by missing piece? Like we don't always fully understand each other. What do you think of that, Jade? I definitely agree. And especially when we were little, that was probably a lot bigger of a problem because all twins want to do the same thing as each other. And so, well, I mean, we did try and do the same things all the time. Like I would always go play wheelchair basketball with her and then she danced for a little bit. Like we did all the same things still, but it was hard. Like in school with friends, we always had different friend groups. And then as we get older, our interests had to kind of diverge because we couldn't do the same things. Like I imagine we would have probably done all the same sports and done everything together if that wouldn't have happened. And obviously like everything that happened, the fact that you were conjoined, the fact that this spinal cord injury was part of Aaron is part of Aaron's life is no one's fault. Jade, I wonder if there are times where you wonder why why it went that way. I guess I have had those moments of like, it's, it sounds weird, but guilt again, it's no one's fault, but like, and also I feel like she's still like, she, Aaron, you still live your life. Like, I don't know, you do amazing. So I, that's not the guilt reason. It's just, I feel like you've gone through a lot more than I have because of that. So I do feel that. How does that feel to hear, Erin? I already knew she felt like that. Read her mind on that. Um, but I don't know if I've gone through necessarily more because, like, she's been there through all of it. So it's just different ways of going through the same thing. The producer for this episode, Jessica, found a study that looked at 40 cases of conjoined twin pregnancies, and they found that the total survival rate for conjoined twins was 7.5%. And if separation surgery was attempted, only 60% of separated conjoined twins survive. When you hear those numbers, how does it make you feel? Uh, definitely makes me feel special. <laughs> um, very thankful. I feel like I don't think about those stats very often just because everything did work out. So I don't really consider the fact that most of the time it doesn't. 
but I do have those moments where like I go back and watch those little documentaries that were made when we were little and I like get all freaked out I'm like what's gonna happen are they gonna be okay and I'm like oh wait it's literally me spoiler (laughs) alert I exist and I'm watching this it's fine (laughs) I do kind of think about that a lot how slim the odds were that we're here and doing as well as we are and it is a little spooky but I am very thankful that things worked out the way they did because they don't most of the time. What are some ways that people screw up talking with you about having been conjoined twins? Well, there's always um, uh, the initial comparison of the whole circus part of like the conjoined twin thing, kind of dehumanizing the whole being a conjoined twin and then comparing us to people that they don't see as real people like um Abby and Brittany the conjoined twins who are still conjoined like it's just people don't think conjoined twins are real people or that they're separate people they're just like oh this one person has two heads or something like that kind of thing so it's always people are not very aware that that's not something you say and that conjoined twins are two different people who just happen to share parts of their body or a body yeah there's always that like initial curiosity like where we were conjoined which is fine but people go wrong with like phrasing of things like Siamese twins that's you shouldn't ever call conjoined twins that because that goes along with the whole circus act thing and not being like real people like Jade said but you know, a lot of people don't like, they're not super offensive. It's just really big curiosity that isn't always phrased very well. When you think about your parents and what this must have been like for them and all the decisions that they had to make throughout all this, what do you want to say to them? I don't know how they did it. I don't think I would have been able to continue going through everything that they went through our entire childhood. I think they're extremely strong. I'm just like, I look up to them so much and their ability to persevere through all of that, like fear that they had to push through. Like they had to make all these decisions about our lives when they kind of had nothing to go off of. So just very honored to be their children. Yeah, I agree. Just simply like, thank you and great job, because it definitely was not easy and is not easy. But they did it as best as they could. And I'm glad that they did. Having been born conjoined twins is kind of a big deal. The fact that you were separated is kind of a big deal. Like, and this happened so early on in your life that it's all you've ever known this information right maybe if you'd never had the scars and maybe if the you know even regardless of the spinal cord injury like if you hadn't known you were conjoined twins you would still be utterly yourselves you just know that you were and you have the scars to prove it how comfortable are you with being identified this way like here you're talking to a public radio host in connecticut who wants to hear all about what it was like being conjoined twins but you're also so much more than that How comfortable are you with this being a really big element in your origin story and in a part of your life still? I'm extremely comfortable with it. 
again, it's probably one of the first things I tell people, mostly because I, my life isn't my life without Aaron in it. So I can't really be myself around people without talking about her constantly. Um, <laughs> so it's something I'm extremely comfortable with. And it's a huge part of my identity. Yeah, I'm the same way. I guess my thing is I don't really bring up the whole formally conjoined thing. Like I just tell people I'm a twin and then I talk about Jade. Like, I guess it only gets brought up if it gets brought up for me. It's not that like I'm not comfortable with it. It's just maybe I'm so comfortable with it that I don't even really think about it ever. Well, did I miss anything, anything you wanted to bring up that I haven't asked you about? By the way, I just want to point out you're both looking up and to the right. It's so cute. (laughs) I wish people would ask me. I also feel like the formally conjoined part is something I talk about mostly because when I talk about Erin, I talk about like that she plays wheelchair basketball at Alabama. And then their next question is always like, why does she play wheelchair basketball? And I'm like, well, during the formally, you know, during the separation surgery, all this happened. So that's probably why I lead with that. So that like when I do talk about everything that she does, I don't have to keep backtracking to answer their questions. Yeah, people see me and there's no reason to assume like anything crazy or, you know, people make other assumptions and I let them do that. What assumptions do people make about you, Erin? Well, they just assume what my disability is without like ever asking. So like a lot of people assume I was in a car accident or like something else that was traumatic and not a stroke. How do you wish people would inquire if they're curious? Do you, are you glad when they don't? Are you glad when they do? Um, I would prefer people ask rather than assume because I think assumptions are annoying and a little bit stupid um, because I personally don't care if people ask me questions about my disability and I would just ask it as simply as you can. Like, why are you in a wheelchair? What is your disability? You know, don't ask, you know, why your legs look a little bit funny. Like, that's not the right phrase I put. Just simple, easy questions like that. I don't care. And I would prefer rather than nothing. Aaron and Jade Buckles, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. I was going to say the same thing, but I was like, let me let her say it first because I know you're going to say that. After the break, what's it like going out into the world with your six-year-old conjoined twins? I had to learn that people are going to look at them, and I kind of tuned it out. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. You're listening to the new investigative reporting podcast in absentia, which means you're interested in getting to the facts and uncovering the truth. If you'd like to help us continue our investigative work, consider making a donation. Visit ctpublic.org slash tap support and contribute today. That's ctpublic.org slash TAP support. Thank you for being a part of the accountability project. So, you've never donated to this station before? That's okay. Public Media Giving Days are a great time to make your first gift. Here's how. Give now at ctpublic.org slash donate. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. 
Let's go back to talking odds. The incidence of conjoined twins is one per 50,000 to 200,000 births. That's according to the National Library of Medicine. Conjoined twins are stillborn 60% of the time, and their total chance of survival is at 7.5%. So it's understandable that many parents who give birth to conjoined twins, like Chelsea, who you'll meet in a minute, don't often expect them to live. But Callie and Carter did live. In fact, they just celebrated their sixth birthday. So I was so excited to meet them and say, Happy birthday! You just turned six recently, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Did you have a cake? And did you blow out candles? Uh, yeah. How many candles were on the cake? Uh, one. Did it say six? Yeah. Yeah. It was a six. How does it feel to be six, not five? We kind of feel like a little big boy. A little bigger. Yeah. Uh, Chelsea. Yes. I was hoping maybe we could uh, go back to the very beginning of their story. When you found out you were having twins, tell me what happened, what that was like. Uh, The day we found out we were having twins, we went in for a vital check. And when we did the vital check, they saw two heartbeats. The doctor kind of just walked into the hospital room and was like, your kids are stuck together. And that's all I really remember of that appointment. What did you think was going to happen? I just thought they were going to die. I was going to have a miscarriage. I found out when I was eight weeks pregnant. So I thought I was going to have a miscarriage. And then I just didn't. And how old were you at the time? I believe I was 23. So you're a baby. Yep. With Babies who are unlike most babies, but they were born healthy. Can you describe where they're joined, what they share, what they don't? Uh, Yeah, so what they don't share is their kidneys. They only have one each, so they have two all together. They don't share stomachs. They don't share hearts. They don't share their upper limbs. They don't share their legs. They each have their own bladder. Um, their intestines, we haven't done extensive, like looking and testing into their intestines, but we've never had an issue with them. So they jumble in there somewhere and they can't figure out where it's at. And we've never done testing to figure out where it's at. It's never been a problem. Um, this one is the left leg. So this one's Carter's and then Callie has the right leg on this side, which they each control on their own, their own leg. Yeah, their own leg underneath them is the one they control. At any point, was it suggested that you could have separation surgery as an option that would be possibly okay? Yeah, it's always an option. So we were told uh, when they did all the testing to take them home and um, treat them like normal kids. And I think because me and my husband were so young at the time that we just kind of listened to what the doctor said and we took them home. And we haven't really like extensively looked into separation surgery since the hospital, since they were born. We haven't really like went to a hospital and told them we wanted to separate because they can function on their own as two people where they will have medical complexities and issues down the line if we separate them into two. Do you ever feel pressure to 
look more into it or is it pretty much this is this is case closed we're not having them separated no definitely pressure there's times where i'm like they're perfect it's fine and then there's a second where oh there could be two they could do their own thing they could do this they can't do that when they're together uh it probably crosses my mind like once every six months it's not something that happens very often but when it does it kind of lingers around for a couple of days and i kind of think about it a lot how risky is it when they were babies they said that um 40 chance that one wouldn't make it and it was like a 20 percent chance they both wouldn't make it but there was so many odds against us and we like we made it to the point where they were born that we just didn't want to push our luck anymore and I'd rather have them conjoin than not have one of them. Okay, Callie and Carter, I have a question. When one of you wants to go one way and the other wants to go another way, how do you figure out which way to go? I'm like, uh, wait a minute. I got a great idea. How about we go in they usually go with the flow of each other but they don't talk they're not they don't say let's go to the living room or anything they just kind of go so i think they have something that is telling them to go a certain way and i know that you love school um how many friends do you think you have at school uh we think we have a hundred friends and everybody likes us. This is narrating Kayon now. I just want to let you know that at this point in the conversation, the girls took off to go play. So you might hear them in the background. When you're out and about going for a walk uh, and shopping and people pass by, what kind of responses do you get? I think everybody stares at us. And I say I think because... I had to learn whenever I had them that people around us are going to look at them. <laughs> and I kind of tuned it out. Like as bad as that sounds, whenever uh, like we went to Walmart today and I could see in the corner of my like peripheral that people were staring at them, but I don't actively look around of my surroundings because if I do, I get very, very overwhelmed and I'll get very protective because almost 90% of everybody there is staring at them. So I had to like teach myself not to be aware of my surroundings, even though you're supposed to be taught opposite. I taught myself not to be aware of my surroundings to kind of like desensitize myself from seeing people look at them constantly. Because at first it was super, super rough. Like I got into a fight with the girl because she took a picture of them and I smashed her phone and it was... <laughs> If I do that now, you know, if I did that every single day since then, there'd be a lot of issues. If you could explode and let it out, what would you say to people who stare or people who worse take photos? Ugh, they're just kids. Like, that's just, it's just rude. It really is. I've had people come up to me and ask to take photos and like that's better than them just taking photos of the girls and stuff. Um, what kind of things would people say? I've had a few people tell me that they belong in like a circus 
lot of people say that they are like they're just like demons and stuff like they're from hell kind of thing um they're monsters i had one guy say he was going to come to my house and kill us all before that one really struck me pretty hard or it's unfair i get called a bad mom if you look through like my tiktok or anything like that a lot of the comments are me being a selfish mother because you are showing them to the world on your own terms yes a lot a lot of it is not straight towards Callie and Carter besides like the monster stuff but 80% of it is towards me 80% of it is like that's selfish mom like that's selfish decision why would you bring your kids into the world like that like what made you think that what do you say to people who challenge your decision to have nurtured them into existence um they didn't go through it you know they didn't get told that their kids were going to die or to have an abortion like seven times they didn't have uh threatened miscarriages i thought my babies were going to die so i was expecting them to die i didn't buy anything for them it was not a normal pregnancy it's just very traumatizing and it's very hard to judge somebody when you haven't, you know, walked in their shoes kind of thing. I want to hear about what you are worried about for when they're teenagers. Um, boys, boys come into the mix, girls come or girls, into the mix. Or anybody really at anybody all. Anybody comes into the picture. I worry that somebody will take advantage of them and um it's a weird thing to have done in your life and i feel that some people would take it as a bragging right Oof. you don't know who's actually genuine in the situation and it's gonna suck <laughs> i don't know if you're the type of person who sees a grand plan in anything but what do you make of it um i don't understand what power or thing happened for me to have conjoined twins but i somehow did it and i don't know what's testing me um <laughs> i don't even get i don't even play the lottery because i feel like i've used up all of my luck on my girls for the rest of my life <laughs> but Thinking like as a kid and like as a teenager, it's really crazy to think that that person would have had conjoined twins. Like, that's crazy. I didn't even look up conjoined twins until I was pregnant with them. Like, it was just kind of a, oh, okay, I see that on Facebook. Bye. Like, I didn't even read about it. So I have, <laughs> I have no idea. I blame it on Walmart's popcorn chicken because you know how sometimes they get stuck together. And I used to always pull them out when I was younger and say, look, I'm having twins. So I blame the popcorn chickens because that's the only thing I could think of in my life where I was like being silly and like contradictive and even had twins. Like it, I can't figure it out why this happened. <laughs> now, I don't know you except for our time together tonight. You seem wise. You seem resourceful. You seem patient. You seem loving. You seem nimble and like a problem solver. Have you always been that way? 
and or how has being their mom specifically enhanced those character traits that I know I see? So at first, I wasn't the best mom to Callie and Carter. My husband actually stayed home when I went to work full time. And I think the reason why I wasn't very attached to them was because I was expecting death. And it took me eight months to gear myself up every single day for them to die. And then they didn't. But I just didn't have any sense of like connection with them. And so as they got older, I had to reconnect with them and be their mom. And I think I'm just making up for them because I wasn't the greatest mom whenever they were here. Before you said yes to us, it was actually kind of hard to get parents to talk with us um, of conjoined twins. Why did you say yes to talking with me? I didn't know much about conjoined twins before this whole thing happened. So just to kind of get them out there and be like, you know, this is how they are. This is who they are. There's other people out there just like them. And then, you know, just kind of bring awareness to the situation. So that way, when they do come across somebody, they don't have to treat them like they're monsters kind of thing. Like they're actually people. They're normal people that just had an unlucky situation and and navigating life's hard already and now you got someone stuck to you for the rest of your life so it's just very it's very hard that was chelsea torres and she was joined in the beginning by her amazing daughters callie and carter audacious is always lovingly produced by me jessica severin de martinez khalil rahman meg fitzgerald Meg Dalton and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford with help from our interns, Elizabeth Van Arnhem and Melody Rivera. Since I know you loved this episode, go back in our archives and check out another show we did about twins, including this one. Imagine that you're 25 years old and you find out that you have an identical twin. And you meet. Sam and Anais join us to tell us what that was like. And you'll also meet Larry Wilson, His identical twin, Ronnie, died by accidental drowning when they were just 16 years old. Larry said he always felt like he was living his life for two after that, so he became a facilitator and advocate in a group for people like him called Twinless Twins International. You can hear that truly beautiful show and all the rest of them at ctpublic.org slash audacious or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute, we'd love an enthusiastic review on Apple Podcasts. Send me your thoughts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wolf, or send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.